Welcome to The Word on Medicine, the conversation dedicated to examining medical innovation and discovery in Southeast Wisconsin. The Word on Medicine is presented by Selig Leeson and features the faculty and research teams of the Medical College of Wisconsin, sharing cutting-edge new knowledge and discoveries. The experts you will hear from today deliver advanced care at Eastern Wisconsin's only academic medical center. And now, The Word on Medicine. Good afternoon, this is Dr. Doug Evans, and on behalf of the faculty and staff of the Medical College of Wisconsin, welcome to another special edition of the Word on Medicine. Today, September 26th, represents the ninth program we have devoted to COVID-19. And we have a great show for you today, which will provide all of the answers you have come to expect from the Word on Medicine. How are COVID numbers looking across Milwaukee and the nation? Where are we with rapid testing, the latest on remdesivir, steroids, other new treatments? And where exactly are we with vaccine trials? Your COVID-19 team, including Drs. Joyce Sanchez, Mary Beth Graham, Jerry Wanina, and Nate Lederbohr, anchor this fact-filled program providing you unbiased information from MCW. We will also have a special segment devoted to how we train doctors in the COVID era of social distancing and stay-at-home learning. So please stay tuned to WISN 1130 AM. A great show is on its way. Before we start today's program, I want to acknowledge Selig Leeson Company and Mark and Debbie Antanasio, who make the Word on Medicine possible with their generous support. This program would not be possible without their support and, equally important, their advocacy for advances in medicine to include the innovation and discovery which inspires the new therapies that all of you have come to expect from the Medical College of Wisconsin. For those of you who may not know, MCW opened its doors in 1885 and now is one of the largest multi-specialty practices in the country with over 1,600 physicians and 650 nurse practitioners and physician assistants who provide care to patients of all ages at hospitals and clinics throughout eastern and central Wisconsin. Today's program is the ninth show devoted to COVID-19 and our 78th edition of The Word on Medicine, so let's get started. In the first segment of the Word on Medicine, we welcome back our experts, Drs. Mary Beth Graham, Joyce Sanchez, Jerry Wainina from the Department of Medicine and the Division of Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Nate Lederbohr from the Department of Pathology, all at MCW. We'll start with Dr. Graham. Mary Beth, uh, where are we in Wisconsin? Are the numbers up, down, or sideways? So Wisconsin, unfortunately, if you look at uh, the United States as a whole, is one of the hot spots uh, for the entire country. Thus far in the state of Wisconsin, we've tested almost one and a half million people with about 110 uh, plus thousand people who've tested positive, around 7,000 patients hospitalized, and around 1,300 deaths. Um, if we look at cumulative hospitalizations nationwide, I mean, they have been going down, uh, but here in uh, southeastern Wisconsin, particularly in Milwaukee County and also in Dane County, just in the last several weeks, our number of hospitalizations have gone up. Having said that, it's nothing that... It's not at the point where it taxes our abilities. If you look at the state of Wisconsin website in terms of available beds, available ventilators, available um, ICU beds, um, we, we are still comfortable there 
we don't want to get to an uncomfortable state. We still need to do everything we can to mitigate spread and potentially have people come in. Most of the people coming in are between, um, most are over the age of 65, and the second most common group is the 50 to 64-year-old group. So the, so the people being hospitalized, we can't blame that on the college kids, right? Or wrong? Um, so the issue is, is that it's, it's, it's like chicken or the egg. So um, they're not the ones who are being hospitalized, but the question is, are they the ones who are exposing those who are becoming hospitalized? Right. right. Certainly a very tricky subject, and, and hopefully, hopefully time will bring uh, improvement, no doubt. Well, uh, Dr. Lederbohr, Nate, um, you're the world's expert on testing. I, I've been tested so, so many times that the last time I think the nurse mentioned that she was just going to leave the swab up there. Um, so swabs, uh, saliva, what, where are we with testing? I, I think the really good thing is we've got a lot of different sources that we can get specimens from. And we know that most of those specimens are pretty good. So whether we collect from the nasal swab, whether we do a saliva collection, or in our symptomatic patients, if we do the less comfortable NP swab, we've got great options. Um, what the nasal swabs and saliva really enable us to do is to expand testing to much larger populations. We don't have to have a healthcare worker collecting those necessarily. And that means the number of people that can get tested is much higher. And the experience of getting tested is a bit more pleasant for people as well. Um, Mary Beth, can I ask you one more one more question before we leave you? So with testing, so if clearly if, if someone has a, a primary care doctor, they can order a test through their primary care doctor. If someone doesn't have a primary care doctor or is um, or is for example visiting a relative in Wisconsin and then and then uh, feels that they should have a test, be it symptomatic or asymptomatic, um, do they go to CVS? What what do they do? Well, I'll be honest. I mean, the, the easiest thing is if you had a if, if you had a provider here in the air, in the Milwaukee area, there is still the two one one number that people can call to check for mobile test sites, um, or just Google. I mean, Google knows everything. Um, if you are in a certain part of the state, so let's say you're up north, you can find if you put mobile test sites for um, COVID. There are many places in different counties that will have them open, and that's how you find the place that you want to go. Sure. Uh, Joyce, did you have any other comment on that? Sure. I think um, I'll just add that Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin has their own hotline, the 414-805-2100. That's another place that people can go to if they're looking specifically for it. They do not need uh, a a primary care doctor in advance, but they can have an e-visit with somebody who can subsequently order testing. Perfect. And Nate, how long does it take to get test results back now? If you're coming to Freighter at the Medical College of Wisconsin, we're turning around all of our test results in under 24 hours. And for many of our most acute patients, we're turning them around in as little as an hour. Wow. Just just amazing. Um, Mary Beth, Dr. Graham, you have mentioned on a couple, on at least two or three of our prior um, programs devoted to COVID-19, the issue of convalescent plasma, where people who were previously infected with um, uh, and had COVID can then donate their plasma, which is theoretically antibody-rich, to people who are sick. I probably didn't explain that as well as you will, but what is? where do we stand with convalescent plasma? So convalescent plasma is still a um, cornerstone for consideration of treatment. I would say not everybody needs to get it. Uh, 
convalescent plasma essentially the liquid part of the blood that comes from somebody who's recovered, as you mentioned, is rich in antibodies. The blood centers test the donors to make sure that they do have antibody titers there. When you give the plasma, essentially, it's meant to be a bridge, essentially. Early on after an infection, our bodies need to learn how to make our own antibodies and our own immune response against a particular pathogen. Um, for SARS-CoV-2, it varies. For younger adults, they may be making antibodies within the first week, um, but they'll be lower levels. And then if you look at older individuals, it may take longer. So by giving convalescent plasma, it's essentially giving an antibody boost. Um, antibody will bind to virus and prevent it from going into cells. So it doesn't kill the virus, but it essentially can act effectively to reduce the amount of virus that is circulating that could then go into a cell and make more of itself. Most of the data suggests that if you give it earlier, it's better. Um, the There are some early trials, and, and there's a lot of information out there. If you give the convalescent plasma to patients less than four days from the onset of symptoms, you potentially can see a, a decrease in morbidity, mortality in those individuals. Um, there was one study that said that if they got it within three days, the death rate um, was 8.7, but for those who got it later on, it was 11.9. But again, there were multiple other factors for um, patients that they looked at. So our studies that we have is we are particularly looking for, we'd like to consider this as an early on treatment for people as an adjunct to other therapies. It's not a standalone, but it's definitely an adjunct to other potential treatments that we can offer. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to Dr. Wainaina. Jerry, uh, what other treatments, what, what has changed in the last couple months um, in your opinion? Um, the treatments that we've had available in addition to convalescent plasma include remdesivir, which is the only antiviral medication uh, that works against SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID. Um, so this reduces the activity of the virus. It's the one thing we have that can kill it. That's still available. Um, when the effect became clear, the company that was producing it made it available free of charge. We then transitioned to commercial distribution via the states. And at the end of this month, we'll be moving to pure commercial distribution, um, which hospitals will then be able to order just like they would for any drugs. So far, the supply has been adequate uh, across the country as far as we can tell. Great. Um, I, another question, we have so many questions for this segment and we're, and we're starting to run short on time, but one of the questions that I think many of our listeners are, are asking, and especially for those who are a little bit older, so older the age of, over the age of 60 or 65, um, should they visit their uh, grandchildren if their grandchildren are now going to school and going back to daycare? What do you think? So the concern is, as Dr. Graham mentioned, uh, the people we are seeing in the hospital are over the age of 65 predominantly, um, though with the comorbidities that we know are associated with COVID. So if their grandchildren are going to school in person, there remains a risk of exposure. Um, and it's difficult to tell if they've acquired the virus uh, because the kids tend to have minimal to no symptoms. Um, so I think all of that should be considered very carefully and ideally probably maintain some distance in order to allow those kids to safely go to school, especially if in-person is valued. And especially if the, if the grandparents have some medical comorbidities. So if they were to get 
uh, ill, it, it might be a, a bigger deal for them. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sanchez, Joyce, we heard from um, Mary Beth Graham that um, Wisconsin is a little bit of a hot spot right now. I know that um, uh, some people have to travel for family issues, um, uh, be they um, be they uh, good or bad. Uh, there are things that happen with families, and and uh, Wisconsin is now a hot spot. And some states say that you may get stopped. Um, should everyone get uh, a COVID test before they go to Mitchell Airport right now? Well, should and could are two different questions, Doug. Some countries and and states require either quarantining or proof of a negative COVID-19 test within a certain window of departure that's generally within 24 to 72 hours. So in that case, then it's generally advised if it's it's a requirement. Um, But things are constantly changing. So where the state of Wisconsin is now versus three months from now, six months from now, that will change. And it's also imperative to check with the airline as well as the destinations policies issued by their departments of health. Interestingly, the United uh, Airlines announced a pilot that they were going to be rolling out rapid COVID-19 testing as an option for passengers traveling between San Francisco and Hawaii next month. I suspect we'll probably see a little bit more of that rollout. Hmm. And Nate, I'll, I'll ask you. So the last time I had a COVID test, um, uh, I was asked whether I was uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic, and I had a different test because I was asymptomatic. It seemed like that um, that probe didn't go quite as far up. What's the story behind that? Sure. So we've been increasingly using nasal swabs again to really make the uh, patient experience a bit better um, it, when we're collecting these specimens. And so we feel very comfortable in using nasal swabs, which have a little lower levels of sensitivity or the ability to detect the virus. But when we consider our community prevalence as a whole and the risk profile of those patients that are getting those asymptomatic swabs, the loss in sensitivity is really negligible. However, if you're symptomatic, we want to make absolutely sure that we get the right answer the first time that your test is collected And so we really want to make sure that we're collecting that deeper NP swab to make sure that we're optimizing that test. Yeah, so it's so important that people be honest. I mean, with COVID testing, honesty is just a critically important item. It's incredibly important because it's not only important for your own care, it's also important for identifying anybody that's positive so that we can prevent transmission to anybody else that you may be exposed to. Yep. Uh, Mary Beth Graham, Dr. Graham, will give you the last word. Um, Should our listeners get a flu shot? And is there any problem with getting a flu shot in this COVID era? Absolutely, they should get their flu shot. Um, We encourage everybody every year to get it, but this may be one of the more important years just because we don't want – we'd like to have that as a primary prevention for another respiratory illness. You can get co-infection, but then if people don't get flu, we don't have people coming in and then wondering, is this flu or is this COVID? In the past in the state of Wisconsin, it's around 40% of people who get vaccinated. Um, The Healthy Person 2020 goal was 70%. We never even got there. Let's go, Wisconsin. Come on. Let's get over 50% this year. Absolutely. And I think, Dr. Sanchez, in the final segment of today's program, you're going to tell us that uh, next year we're probably going to get our flu shot and our COVID shot. And I'm sure in 10 years we might have about four or five more shots. But anyway, we'll, we'll cover that in a bit. We'll be back after a short break. Thank you all so much. You're listening to The Word on Medicine. If you'd like more information about something you heard today, call 414-805-3666. 
Now, here's more of The Word on Medicine on News Talk 1130 WISN. Welcome back. This is Dr. Doug Evans from the Medical College of Wisconsin, and you are listening to a special edition of The Word on Medicine devoted to COVID-19. We also cover selected topics related to COVID-19 every Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. on The Latest Word on Medicine, a short four-minute program which highlights the developments of the week, medical breakthroughs, what is happening in southeastern Wisconsin and throughout the world. We also have a number of very important non-COVID programs. They are quick and easy to listen to. For example, yesterday, I hope all of you heard Dr. Susan Tsai discuss the amazing things we are doing in the research and treatment of pancreatic cancer. This, of course, in response to the death of Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. RBG was a passionate and powerful advocate for so many things that are important to making this world a better place. On top of her list was her advocacy for justice, gender equality, and the promotion of women to leadership positions across all of society, something we have championed at MCW. So please listen to the podcast of the latest Word on Medicine available on the iHeartMedia website. In the second segment of this program, we welcome Dr. William Houston, Senior Associate Dean of the Medical College of Wisconsin, and Emily, Emily Nyland, one of MCW's many great medical students. Dr. Bill Houston is a graduate of Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, following which he completed a residency in family medicine and a fellowship at the University of North Carolina. He came to MCW in 2013 from the Medical University of South Carolina, where he was chair of the Department of Family Medicine. Bill is currently the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Provost at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Emily Nyland was valedictorian at Rockford Christian High School in Illinois and was recruited to play Division I basketball at Longwood University in Virginia. She was named to the Big South Conference All-Academic Team and was also named to the President's List and the Dean's List. Her research in college was in the field of immunology and immune checkpoint blockade. I know that Emily plans to further pursue that in the field of pancreas cancer and will be working on her hard after this program. Emily, I'll have you know that some of us made a couple lists in the dean's office in college, but I think they were probably a bit different than the list that you were on. Um, Anyway, Dr. Houston, Emily, thank you so much for joining the Word on Medicine. We'll start with Dr. Houston. Bill, I think our listeners would be thrilled to know how doctors are trained. Perhaps a brief, before we get to the changes that that you and, and many others in leadership put in for the COVID pandemic, um, how, how in general are doctors trained? Well, thanks, Doug. I, I think a good metaphor for training doctors is building a house. Uh, when you go off and build a house, the first thing you do is dig a, dig a big hole and pour the foundation. And that foundation, although it's not seen, it's mostly out of sight, is extremely important because that supports the entire rest of the structure. And that's how our medical students start out. For the first two years of medical school, we deal with foundational sciences. Uh, They're in classrooms a lot. They're learning a lot. Uh, It's a lot like college, except it's college on, on steroids. It's really amped up. For example, a typical college student might take 30 credits during a year. Uh, medical school would be the equivalent of about 55 credits. So it's almost double the amount of work as a regular college year. And there's no gym class or uh, other easy courses. These are all the hardest courses people would ever take in college all at the same time. But that, that uh, foundation is extremely important because that's what everything else rests on. Uh, and I do that for a couple of years. Two of their four years are in the foundational sciences. And then what we do is we build the frame of the house. Uh, what we do is foundational clinical work. 
and they go off and work all in the same areas over a year, doing rotations and surgery and medicine and pediatrics and family medicine and OB, all the typical things that people think about in medicine. And that's something all the students do. It really gives them now a good framing for the rest of their medical career. Then the final year is really the uh, the time that they can differentiate. It's sort of when you get that house done and you've got the drywall up and now you get to pick what color walls you want and what kind of carpeting and what kind of fixtures. Uh, and that's what the fourth year of medical school is like for students. They can differentiate and do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And the fourth year can really get them ready for what they want to do in the rest of their career and round out their medical school training. So it's long, it's arduous. There are many very important steps along the way where they have to take uh, licensing exams so they can't progress unless they show that they're competent and able to move on. So uh, it's, it's something that I think is probably the second hardest thing they ever will do in their life. The hardest thing being residents after they finish medical school. Wow. Well, that, that was just a perfect summary. And I can't even imagine how, because of everything you talked about, clearly implies that it's so interactive. And, uh, and obviously, um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of medicine is, uh, is practice makes perfect, so that they need to see, see patients and, and be interacting with, with physicians and families, et cetera. How, how did you deal with COVID? And, and also, how did you deal with it so quickly? Because this you know, when you think about it, last year at this time, um, we didn't even know anything about SARS-CoV-2. I, I know. This was something where we had to pivot very quickly. Uh, we were fortunate in one sense that uh, when the COVID crisis really hit Wisconsin and the governor uh, issued the Safer at Home edict, uh, it happened about two days before our spring break. So that gave us a chance to finish out those couple days and then have a week for us really to retool the entire way we delivered medical education. We had to move all of our foundational science from in-person lectures, in-person experiences onto online experiences. And that includes both lectures, but also times when students will interact with patients to learn communication skills and physical exam skills. Those are things we had to now develop simulations that we could do instead of in-person now online. So our simulated patients who were used to sitting in rooms with patients, now we're on the computer with them uh, doing communication skills. Can, can you just explain, can, can I, sorry to interrupt, but I wanted you to just explain sure. the, the, what a simulation patient is. Oh, great. Yeah, a simulated patient is someone, an, an actor, a community member who comes in with a little bit of training and can now portray a patient. So we can give students uh, similar experiences over and over and over again. Uh, and then they can also help rate the student. They're trained to assess how the student does in their communication skills or in their physical exam maneuvers. And we have a large team of uh, folks from the community who work part-time for us uh, and come in and do those in a variety of different roles. My son is one of the one of the uh, simulated patients as well. He was a theater major in college, and I thought, of course, he'll never have a job doing that, but now he's a simulated patient. So he's working in medical education, even though he's a theater major. Wow. And I think you videotape some of those, don't you? We do. Uh, my son's actually the videotaped patient on how to do a complete physical exam. So uh, students can watch that. They can practice. Uh, they can train. And what we found is that they can do it fairly well from their own home where they're safe rather than having to come into the campus. I think a harder thing was when they're in the clinics in the hospital, working with patients. Uh, that's much harder to simulate, but we took very uh, 
very big pains to try to do that as well. We've used some cases or uh, computer-based cases for them to learn the foundational clinical information. And we've developed some unique strategies, including uh, what we're calling a simulated night on call for patients, uh, or students rather. So the student uh, will be on call that night from home with their beeper and their telephone. And then through a series of simulated phone calls, Someone will portray a nurse, someone will portray a patient calling from home. Others will be another doctor for consultation or talking about a patient emergency room. The student is faced with a variety of challenges through the evening and has to respond to those as if they were in the hospital taking call and responsible for those folks. That's something we put together with uh, NYU and some of our colleagues from NYU actually played some of the uh, characters in our, our simulation. And that way we were able to continue the education of our students, but also assess their ability and look for gaps and where are they, uh, they still need a little bit of help here, a little bit of help there, in ways that you can't do if it's just uh, random patients calling them on the phone. Well, needless to say, for you and your team, that spring break uh, vacation was canceled, and you guys, you guys probably worked about uh, about 20 hours a day. That's just, just amazing. Emily, um, what was it like when um, when you came back from spring break this year? Then uh, spring break is a week, and it's so it's, I don't want people to think that the medical students get spring break like occurs in college. So this was medical student spring break. But what happened when you came back? Um, well, when we when spring break started, we had taken an actual exam in person. Um, and when we finished that exam, we didn't know exactly at that time that that was going to be the last time that we all saw each other in person in a big group setting. We kind of found out all of those details as spring break went on a little bit. Um, so we never came back in person after spring break. So we had to adjust to everything being the virtual learning. Um, and thankfully, MCW already previously to um, the virtual learning switch, um, live stream their lectures, put them up recorded, um, and you didn't have to attend lectures in person Person, um, if you didn't feel like you learned better that way. Um, and I personally watched them from home already. So that wasn't as big of a switch um, for me. Um, the biggest switch, as Dr. Houston mentioned, was that um, we just weren't able to go into clinic um, as before. So um, as an M1, you're really only uh, experience with real patients in clinic is your once a week clinical apprenticeship um, where you go for half a day and you get to actually feel like you're part of the medical team and um, you get to take histories and practice your physical exams on real patients. Um, and that was something that had um, had to stop during that time. Um, so that was definitely the biggest change. Um, we're still able to, you know, through simulated um, sessions, practice on family members, roommates, um, things sure. like that. But it just doesn't... Um, replace that like real experience that you get in the clinic. So I would say that was the biggest change um, uh, when we kind of came back to the virtual learning. And those relationships I, uh, for the first year medical students, that half day in the clinic, I, it's, a, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful aspect to MCW education. And for, for those listeners who uh, are not in medicine, uh, uh, the culture of education here and the and the storied tradition of education is is really unique. As as someone who has been um, in a number of other in, uh, medical institutions around the United States, I, I've only been here, only been lucky enough to be here uh, for the last eleven years. Um, the the devotion to education that occurs here is is really something special. And and that um, and that first, as you called it, M one program of 
of a half a day in clinic. I, I still have a close relationship with some of the students who, who have done that with me. Um, Dr. Houston, in, in our final couple minutes, um, what changes um, that you've had to make with COVID do you think will stick and are, and are probably good innovations? And, uh, and then lastly, where, where do the medical students stand now? Well, I think the medical students have made good progress. You know, like, like other industries, we're essential. Uh, we can't just pull the plug and say we're going to pause because everyone's reliant on us graduating good doctors every year to move into the hospitals and become the house officers and residents in those hospitals. So we have to keep moving on, and we can't reduce the quality of the product of our graduates. So when we look about uh, what we're doing now, I think virtual education is here to stay. Uh, Passive learning, sitting there in a classroom, uh, doesn't make sense when you can sit at home and have the same experience at home and not have to get up and dress and travel and park and walk in and go through all those other time-consuming events. So you get more personal time when you can do that. We're also looking at uh, other ways for the clinical education to supplement that with off-site activities like cases and simulations so that students can uh, get those experiences uh, and we can do it in a safe way so that patients aren't exposed to students when they do something for the first time. And then the final thing that we're just starting to invest in now, uh, where I think uh, medicine has really been behind, is in virtual reality training. Uh, there are many things that we can do with virtual reality that can uh, give students the same experience as being there and uh, doing many of their activities. And that's an area where technology in general really hasn't changed medical education. We've adopted technology to do what we do a little better, but we haven't use technology to change the way we do things. And I think in the future, we'll be looking at how do we use technology to change the way we deliver the curriculum rather than just to deliver it a little more efficiently. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Bill Houston, Emily Nyland, thank you both so much for joining the Word on Medicine. And we'll be back after our short break for our final segment. You're listening to the Word on Medicine, presented by Selig Leeson on News Talk 1130 WISN. This is Dr. Doug Evans, and you are listening to a special edition of The Word on Medicine devoted to COVID-19. A podcast of today's program will be available on the iHeartMedia website within the next day or two. Simply go to The Word on Medicine. Remember, the latest Word on Medicine is heard every Friday at 2 p.m. and The Word on Medicine every Saturday at 4 p.m. I have to say we have so many exciting things going on at MCW that we simply can't find room to get everything on the radio. For example, just this week, our cardiac surgeons saved another life with a long-distance heart transplant using the portable organ care system, the only portable system available for maintenance of the donor heart in a metabolically active and beating state. The heart, once removed from the donor, is perfused with oxygenated blood and essentially fully recovered before it is implanted into the recipient. Just amazing. And of course, this is done on a carefully controlled and actively monitored clinical trial, only possible in an academic medical center with the research infrastructure to support this kind of work. You will hear Dr. David Joyce talk about this amazing technology very soon. In the final segment of today's program, we welcome Dr. Joyce Sanchez and Dr. Karen Fickle. Dr. Sanchez requires no introduction, our infectious disease expert, better than anyone on TV and with a real talent for explaining some of the complex aspects of COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. She will be joined by Dr. Karen Fickle. 
Dr. Fickle received her medical degree from the University of Iowa and completed her internal medicine residency at MCW. She joined MCW in 2001 and has held a number of leadership positions within the clinical practices. She has championed quality and process improvement efforts, created innovative multidisciplinary programs, and worked extensively in population health. Currently, Dr. Fickle is medical director for Inception Health and their remote monitoring team, including the EICU, telehospitalists, and many other new ambulatory monitoring innovations. Well, thank you both for joining. I think, uh, uh, Karen, Dr. Fickle, we'll start with you. What are COVID-19 long haulers? Many of our listeners have not heard this. They will think we're referring to some kind of uh, fishing on, uh, on the Atlantic Ocean. Long haulers is a term that really is a reference to people who have lingering or ongoing symptoms. Unfortunately, patients with coronavirus can have symptoms that last days to weeks to even months after they begin to get well. And what symptoms do you, do you typically have when that occurs? Because I, I thought that usually when you get better, you're better, but that apparently is not the case. There are really a multitude of different symptoms you can have. This virus affects virtually every system that we have. Common things that you might see would be a chronic cough, shortness of breath, exercise intolerance. I had a patient that I did a video visit follow-up with a couple of weeks ago, 20-something. She's a marathon runner. She's about six weeks out from her original diagnosis, and she's really wrestling with getting up past three or four miles a day, for example. It's just taking a long time for her to come back. People can have fibrosis of the lungs. They can have inflammation. It can affect your heart. You can have myocarditis, heart failure, chest tightness. It can affect your mental well-being as well. Uh, significant anxiety, some issues with attention, brain fog, which is really poorly understood and hard to treat and support. You can have myalgias or ongoing muscle aches, chronic diarrhea, rashes, fatigue, headache, um, kidney problems, clotting disorders, thrombosis. I'm getting depressed just listening <laughs> to this whole list. Um, Joyce, how, how do we know whether... Um, whether someone is really a long hauler, they're having symptoms of COVID-19, or, um, or whether they're just, you know, this is just, they're just having a bad day, especially, especially when there's so much of an emotional overlay. And I think in general, our, our society right now, everyone is, is probably not in the greatest place that, that they could be, right? I think everyone is a little lonely. They would like um, more interaction. I think the uh, certainly what we're seeing on college campuses is people just would like to, you know, get out and have a beer with their friends. But how do you know whether whether this is a long hauling experience or not? I think that's an excellent question, Doug. And part of the challenge with this is that we're eight to nine months into the pandemic. So we're still gathering data and still coming to an understanding of where people are, if they're still persistently ill, still persistently not at their usual baseline state of health after they have, quote, recovered from the initial acute insult or the initial acute infection. And we really don't quite understand how that happens either. There's a, a few mechanisms that have been proposed out there, such as a lingering, persistent, overly abundant immune response that attacks the organs that causes that shortness of breath. We know that people have radiographic or x-ray or CAT scan findings weeks to months after recovery of their acute illness. Um, there is a thought that perhaps little viral particles are persistent that 
revs up or triggers that persistent immune response. And then there's a theory that maybe there is live uh, virus in a reservoir form somewhere. We don't know that if that's the case, but these are things that we are actively investigating as a medical community. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to The Word on Medicine, and we're lucky enough to have Dr. Joyce Sanchez and Dr. Karen Fickle with, with us here right now from, from MCW. And to follow, follow up on that, Joyce, is there a test that you can do to uh, determine whether you have persistent either, either immune responses to COVID or just persistent virus? Is there anything that you can do so that I, for example, if it was me and I, um, I had some of these, some of these symptoms, I would like to know whether this is COVID-19 or this is just me getting uh, old and maybe a little sleep deprived. I think that's a big challenge and it depends on where your symptoms are. If it's regarding exercise capacity, there's certain exercise tests to help quantify where the effects are. If it's heart-related condition, um, there's specific tests. But one thing I wanna highlight though is at the beginning of the pandemic, back in February and March, before we had these wonderful testing uh, capacities that Dr. Ledebauer talked about on segment one, many people were probably infected and never realized it. So that's something to consider asking your primary care doctor doctor about. And the test of uh, choice in that case, if you never got that PCR testing where they do the nasal swab or, or the nasopharyngeal swab or saliva swab is to do an antibody test to see if you've been exposed and have subsequently developed antibodies in the first place. Sure. So Karen, what is the what is the likelihood that someone is going to going to have these long hauling uh, effects or be a long hauler as they're now termed now or or simply get better? We don't exactly know the percentage. Uh, a best guess is even for mild cases that didn't require hospitalization, it may be close to 10% that people have symptoms at least that 4 to 6 week mark. And for those who are hospitalized, it may even be longer than that. It could be weeks to months that they have persistent and ongoing symptoms. Well, hopefully ho hopefully our listeners will at least realize that uh, it's important to stay in tune with their body. Um, and it's probably a little early to um, to spike the football and just, sep and just celebrate once they're starting to get better from COVID-19 or, or have hopefully avoided the hospital. Well, uh, Joyce, what what everyone is uh, is waiting to hear is the the subject of vaccines. Um, what is the latest on um, on the vaccine waterfront? And uh, we can get to timing maybe in a little bit. Well, I'm really, really excited to share that, at least in my experience as a clinician, I've not seen the, the speed of advancement accelerate um, the way it has this year for COVID-19. Right now, eight months into the pandemic, we're at 42 vaccine candidates currently in humans. So we're not even talking about animals or cells on Petri dishes. And of those 11 are in the large phase three clinical trials where we're looking at thousands of people who are being uh, tested to determine efficacy and safety. Just this week, the fourth vaccine here in the U.S. begins its large-scale clinical trial. Um, and that's also very exciting news to see. Um, I actually really enjoy listening to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's quite optimistic that one or more vaccines will hopefully be approved in the coming months. Um, I personally am still hopeful for early spring. Uh, we'll see. It may be sooner. Uh, it may be later than that. Uh, we'll see how the data uh, comes out in terms of that efficacy and safety we're really looking for. And can you ref uh, review for our listeners, how does a, how does a vaccine work? 
There are several platforms of vaccines, but the summary, the crux that you're really trying to do is get your body's immune system to develop two things. The first is an antibody response. Antibodies are made by immune cells that after they've interacted with a virus, they make flags that attach on and label a virus so that the army of the immune system can later chew them up. The second uh, goal for vaccines is to develop a more long-term sustainable, what we call T-cell immunity, that helps to aid and assist in that B-cell response. So in summary, it's really just aiding your body to be able to fight virus as soon as it comes into contact with it after you get a vaccine. Sure. And I suspect that there are potentially two problems with a vaccine. Uh, and this is a simple surgeon just thinking about this. Number one, it won't work. Um, and number two, could there be a side effect of the vaccine? And maybe you could comment upon those. I think many of us in medicine were focused predominantly because of how the vaccine works and it and it harnesses our own immune system we weren't really too concerned about a, a bad reaction to the vaccine in other words we weren't really thinking that the vaccine would be dangerous the main issue would be it just won't work but maybe you could address each of those two areas in our final couple minutes sure in regards to that first concern about not being able to work we know we, we do not have a commercially available vaccine for anything, whether it be measles or influenza, that is 100% effective. That's just not the way vaccines work as much as we'd like them to. We have very high performers like the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, that is above 95% in terms of efficacy and has long durability to go along with it. And then you have the low performers and sometimes the influenza vaccine performance is less than 50% and, and we do the best we can and it's because we have to predict what seasonal flu will look like every year. Um, so this is a challenge that vaccine manufacturers and investigators are consistently trying to overcome these mountains. And there are several platforms to try to, 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 to overcome those hurdles in terms of a protein vaccine or a vector vaccine where they take adenovirus, which causes about 30% of um, the colds that go out and circulate every winter and deliver a um, part of the genome that gives your body's immune response to the spike protein, which is on the surface of SARS-CoV-2 in a Trojan horse type of fashion where you're going in with the common cold and really exposing them to that piece of SARS-CoV-2. Um, as far as the safety is concerned, you know, there has been lots of concerns in the midst of this Operation Warp Speed, trying to get a vaccine accelerated. And when I think about how our investigatory process goes. I am um, very comforted by the fact that we have individual independent data safety and monitoring boards that are part of these clinical trials that are not at all related to the manufacturer, not at all related to the study investigators, not even related to the Food and Drug Administration, separate people who are looking at the data in a very comprehensive fashion and thinking analytically about it, both in terms of safety as well as efficacy. So it's so our, many of our listeners um, uh, probably have uh, have relatives who are in high risk, or some of our listeners may be higher risk due to age, medical comorbidities. They may have a mom or a dad who's in an assisted living, and I assume when the vaccine rolls out, they may be prioritized for vaccination. 
is it, is it, um, is it accurate to say that the, that the vaccine will likely be safe? In other words, it would probably be a mistake for them to refuse a vaccine that was, um, that was FDA approved and, and sanctioned. So as a vaccine is approved by the FDA, they look at the number of adverse effects and they determine whether they're mild, moderate, or severe. And then they juxtapose that with what the risk is to be unvaccinated. And it's a weight of the risks and benefits. What if you are going on unvaccinated into the winter, spring, or next year, if the pandemic uh, is still on fire the way it has been in our country and across the globe, and you contrast that with the risks of the vaccine. And by the time it's approved by the FDA, we have really good data and thousands of people to really quantify what that risk is. Yeah, perfect. Well, a perfect way to end this show. Thank you both, Dr. Joyce Sanchez and Dr. Karen Fickle. Thank you so much. We'll be back for our wrap-up after a short break. Talking about innovative medicine with top experts. It's the Word on Medicine on News Talk 1130, WISN. Welcome back to The Word on Medicine. This is Dr. Doug Evans, and thank you all again for joining us today. In our last few minutes, I would like to pay a special tribute to Dr. John Fangman, who will be leaving MCW for a leadership position as CMO for Partners Healthcare in Boston. His academic affiliation will be with Harvard Medical School. The physicians of Massachusetts General Hospital and the Brigham and Women's Hospital are very lucky to have John Fangman join their leadership team. John has been a frequent expert on The Word on Medicine, as an infectious disease physician, he has provided commentary on COVID-19, of course, and also everything from Lyme disease to HIV to the common cold and much, much more. Importantly, John also has provided the perspective of a frontline doctor, someone who cares deeply about all patients, about all healthcare workers, and about all of you. At this time in America, when tensions are high, we need more John Fangmans. He embodies the Hippocratic Oath, and especially that part of the oath that reads, I will remember that there is an art to medicine as well as a science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. So good luck to, jo to Dr. John Fangman from all of us on The Word on Medicine. And with that, we conclude our show for today. Please join us next Saturday at 4 p.m. for another edition of The Word on Medicine. If you missed any of today's program, it will be available on podcast within the next day or two. On behalf of WISN and our producer, Dave Michaels, thank you all for listening today. And a big thank you to Seela Gleason Company and to Mark and Debbie Antanasio for making the Word on Medicine possible through their generous support. Please stay tuned to WISN for the latest information from the medical teams at MCW. This is Dr. Doug Evans wishing you all a healthy week ahead.